This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. America's war in Iraq has officially ended. I'm proud to finally say these two words, and I know your families agree. Welcome home. Welcome home. Britain's most senior military man says the greatest strategic risk facing the UK is economic, and as a rare Jolly Roger goes on public display, we look at pirates past and present. America is pulling out of Iraq. Earlier today, the US Army held a ceremony in Baghdad to mark the formal end of nearly nine years of American military presence in the country. Addressing the troops, the US Defense Secretary Leon Panetta said that no words could provide full tribute to the sacrifice that had been made. The several thousand US troops still in Iraq will complete their withdrawal in the next few days, although some military trainers and private contractors will stay on. Before he was president, Barack Obama called Iraq a dumb war, but he chose his words carefully for his speech to returning soldiers on the eve of the ceremony, and there was no mention of mission accomplished. As your commander-in-chief, and on behalf of a grateful nation, I'm proud to finally say these two words, and I know your families agree. Welcome home. Welcome home. The president went on to describe the moment as historic and praised the troops' courage and professionalism. In the quiet of night, you will recall that your heart was once touched by fire. You will know that you answered when your country called. You served a cause greater than yourselves. You helped forge a just and lasting peace with Iraq and among all nations. Sir Jeremy Greenstock was the UK Special Representative for Iraq between 2003 and 2004 and now chairs the UN Association in the UK. I spoke to him a little earlier and asked him what he made of Obama's handling of the withdrawal. I um, welcome the fact that American troops are, are coming home. I was a bit disappointed that he didn't give us more substance about what American policy will be on Iraq in this new phase of Iraq's history because the country has got a lot to go through to live up to its own responsibility to, to manage its affairs. And uh, we would have wanted to hear, I think, a bit more about how America is going to help them doing that. Uh, but there's no doubt in my mind that this is uh, a good time to be bringing troops back, although I would have preferred, I suppose, that it happened on a more graduated scale than, than just a sudden departure. What do you make of uh, Barack Obama's assessment of the situation in Iraq at the moment, that it is a sovereign, stable and self-reliant country? It's um, some way from stability, as we will see during the course, I think, of 2012. Self-reliant, it has wanted to be for a long time, but it hasn't got the machinery, the cohesion, uh, the economic momentum yet to be a stable, prosperous country as we had hoped it would quickly become after 2003. It has a long way to go. It's got a long history of, of tribal and sectarian differences, and these still have to be mended before Iraq can take its place amongst uh, the stable democracies in the world. Is it possible for Iraq to become a stable and prosperous democracy, and what is needed for it to do so? It is possible. I think in time... 
we will see uh, an Iraq in much better condition, but it does take time, maybe a, a full generation. What is needed is a sounder coalition approach to government between the major parties. And there have been really very contentious arguments going on over the past year or two since the last government formed. It needs economic progress uh, based on its oil and gas industry where the infrastructure has not been properly developed. There's still a shortage of electricity, uh, of pipelines, of roads and other forms of transport. There's a long way to go on infrastructure. And there needs to be a popular response to the sort of government that is emerging in Iraq that gives uh, the government time to bring these things forward, but also uh, has a say in who should rule them and how long they should stay in government. And at the moment, we're seeing an inclination towards autocratic methods in government, which I hope will, um, will play itself out of the system over the next couple of years. You've talked in the past that there needs to be a regional solution to secure the future of Iraq. Is that possible in today's climate where we see the Arab Spring, the effect it's having on different countries, the situation in Syria, Iran, just to name a few? Well, the regional situation is, is changing, um, possibly unstable. Certainly Syria uh, is unstable. Uh, and the influence of Iran on Iraq needs to be noted and, and watched. It's not always benign. Turkey has a very strong interest in what happens in Iraq, and I hope that Turkey's influence will be benign. They want to be a contributor to the economic progress in Iraq. They want business from Iraq, as does Iran, actually. But there's a long way to go before all Iraq's neighbors uh, think alike and, and treat Iraq alike. Saudi Arabia is particularly fearful of a, a Shia arc above them in Syria, Iraq and uh, Iran. There's a long way to go before all, all the neighbours uh, and Iraq work in, uni in unison. What's your assessment? Do you think Iraq is a better place now than when Saddam Hussein was in power? Iraq has much better opportunities now than when Saddam was in power. He was uh, a brutally repressive dictator. But security is probably not as good in the absolute sense for each family in Iraq. Uh, and that's a failure over the last eight years. But the economic opportunities, the spread of local and national power is better arranged. And therefore, the opportunities for Iraqis to take power over their own future is far greater than under Saddam Hussein. Obama described the handover and what's been achieved in Iraq as an extraordinary achievement. How do you think history will judge the Iraq war? I think history will say it was an extraordinary effort that the Americans made with their allies, with us, the British. Successful, but, as Obama but judges But there were it. failures, but there were failures. And not, uh, not a complete success. Security was a particular lacuna from early 2003 onwards, frankly, there weren't enough American troops on the ground. And the failure to generate more economic progress, more electricity, uh, a faster increase in oil and gas exports is also a mark against the, uh, the, the foreign presence, in my view. Do you think the US and Britain has learned from Iraq and will learn the lessons for the future? I think there is, uh, the lessons will come out in the Chilcot inquiry next year, 
but this sort of intervention will be regarded with very much greater caution next time it it presents itself as an option. You saw over Libya how we stayed out of uh, boots on the ground. We will certainly stay out of Syria. Uh, we should not be thinking of attacking or invading Iran, uh, in my view. Uh, Iraq has taught us some lessons, yes. Sir Jeremy Greenstock speaking to me earlier. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Hi, Christopher. Um, Barack Obama has commented also that it's harder to end a war than begin one. Do you think the experience of Iraq, Afghanistan, indeed today's economic climate, will stop us from such decisive action well, on problem, invasions in the future? I mean, the problem is you go into the United Nations now and they'll say, right, Iraq was an illegal war. It wasn't legal to do it. Secondly, the Americans did not understand what they were getting into. They didn't understand the difference between Sunni and, and, and Shias. So you think history will judge it as a disaster, do you? Uh, not a disaster, just what the heck was going on. But if you look at it now, um, Jeremy Greenstock was saying, um, well, better opportunities now, under, uh, not under uh, Saddam. Um, 100,000 Iraqis were killed um, during that war. That's more Iraqis than Saddam could ever have figured out how to kill. Um, there is that cynical sort of side to it. Mm. Yes, um, we're now waiting for the Americans, and uh, uh, Greenstock said right at the beginning of that interview, with him, he said, uh, well, you know, pity the Americans didn't tell us what the policy is. Americans don't have a policy. That's why we didn't hear it, and that is the tragedy of the whole, the, the, the whole thing. How would you judge, Christopher, the stability of Iraq at the moment and the security situation? Well, two things. Um, every day, there are an average of two explosions, killings, or whatever. Still, that's going on. But that on. is a lot few, is fewer, oh, isn't yes. it, in the I world? Yes, we go back to 2007-8, we were talking about, oh, I don't know, a thousand a week, a thousand a month. But I was talking to somebody I knew, I'd known in, in Washington and had gone back and supported the idea of, of getting rid of Saddam. And he's in Fallujah. Yesterday in Fallujah, when, you know, the big thing about this is the end of the war, he said, we have pictures of the Americans that were killed here in Fallujah. We have got them on the, on the streets and we're stamping on them. Mm. And we're burning American flags. Now, this is a guy who, with quite a few of them, started out that war on the side of America. That is a huge personality change, and I think it tells us what we have to understand about Iraq before we talk about mission accomplished. The Chief of Defence Staff says economic worries are cause for military concern and a rare 18th century Jolly Roger goes on display at a museum in Portsmouth. We look at how the Royal Navy fought pirates back then and is still fighting them now. Concern has been raised over the future care of troops returning from service with severe injuries and mental health problems. In the report on military casualties following the introduction of the Armed Forces Covenant in May, the Commons Defence Committee praised the first-class medical treatment available but questioned whether it was sustainable. Earlier I spoke to the committee chairman, James Arbuthnot. I asked him what their main concerns are. We do have concerns, um, but uh, the main finding that we had was that the overall level of treatment of 
people who are injured on the battlefield is really extraordinarily high, uh, both from the Ministry of Defence and uh, in the initial stages from the national health system. Uh, but we are concerned particularly that at the uh, time when we r reduce our forces in Afghanistan, withdraw from the combat role in Afghanistan, and perhaps the armed forces fall out of the public eye, then the level of support in the public and in terms of charitable donations may begin to reduce. And we need to ensure that the armed forces who are injured have, uh, have a good quality of life and the best care possible for the whole of their lives, given what they have sacrificed for their country and for each other. On the subject of financial support, you're calling for the government to act urgently to exclude armed forces compensation from consideration when it's uh, their means testing for benefits and the kind of support that injured troops will receive. Uh, why do you think that is so important? Well, we agreed with the Minister for Veterans who said that the award of compensation were for, for example, the loss of a limb was not intended to be anything other than a recognition of the suffering that that particular person had gone through. It wasn't intended, for example, to provide uh, sit-in showers or uh, adapted cars. That was, for, uh, that was meant to come out of another part of uh, government funding. And so uh, we agree with the Minister for Veterans that that is something that needs to be determined now rather than be set out for a debate next year. Um, because if you set it out for a debate next year and you come up with the right answer, namely that compensation is meant to be compensation and not part of the social care system, uh, then it means that for a period of time, some people, while that debate is going on, might be deprived of the benefit of having that compensation free and above uh, charge for social care issues. In terms of the support for children where a relative has been killed or severely injured, you also have some criticism to level at the government. Where are they going wrong on this? Yes, we do. We, uh, we say that uh, although there are many areas of uh, medical care for those who are uh, injured, which are outstanding, uh, their support for the families, for uh, children who have been traumatized uh, often by the knowledge that their the father or mother or sister or whatever, or a friend actually of the family has been either severely wounded or has perhaps been killed. The support for the families is something which the Ministry of Defense itself acknowledges leaves something to be desired. So we say that the government needs to address that as a matter of some urgency. Largely the uh, armed forces charities uh, have nothing but praise for the way that the uh, Ministry of Defence deals with injured personnel, but they too say that there are uh, areas of support for the families which really could be improved. You've raised concerns about the government's planned reforms of the NHS. How is that likely to impact on troops and the way that they are cared for? What are your fears? What we don't want to see is some sort of postcode lottery where uh, the treatment of the if wounded or injured uh, personnel 
is different uh, when they come out of the Ministry of Defence, where their treatment is largely uh, extraordinarily good, if they go to different areas of the country. And one of the uh, issues that we raise in this report, therefore, is that the changes to the national health system, uh, which might be seen by some as causing a fragmentation of the unified approach that we think ought to be applied, at the very least, to the armed forces, uh, across not just England and Wales, but Scotland and Northern Ireland as well. That needs to be at the highest level possible, the same level that they get when they're in the Ministry of Defence. So uh, we say there needs to be better coordination and better education as well of the civilian doctors who uh, will be facing for many, many decades now the consequences of what we've been uh, putting our armed forces through in uh, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and to a certain extent in Libya as well. You've mentioned the economic climate in which we're now living, and the report highlights the burden placed on charities that they are taking to support injured personnel and their needs. Um, isn't that just realistic? You can't really ask the government to pay more, can you? No, we we can't. And we, we can't complain about the fact that charities are doing a lot to help the uh, to help the armed forces in fact we approve of that because uh, it's not just that the people the people of the country whom the armed forces are fighting on behalf of uh, want to give money to support uh, help for heroes for example because there is a huge degree of sympathy which we entirely approve of uh, in the public, but it also those charitable donations keep the armed forces and the people in contact with each other at a time when not many people nowadays have experience personal experience of being in the armed forces. That contact is a really valuable part of what the charities do. Um, but we do say that the Ministry of Defence has got to make it clear what areas it feels it is right for it to fund and what areas it feels it is right to leave to charities. Uh, and we've also got to ensure that if a charity gives some sort of capital uh, project to the Ministry of Defence, there has got to be in place the income funding in the future to keep that capital project in good, good order, properly maintained and stuff like that. That was James Arbuthnot, chairman of the Commons Defence Committee. Well, in response to the report, Defence Personnel Minister Andrew Robethon said, there is always more to do and we will carefully consider the committee's specific recommendations as we strive to fully meet and sustain our commitment to wounded, injured and sick personnel under the Armed Forces Covenant. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Britain's most senior military man has said that the greatest strategic risk facing the UK is not a military one. In the Chief of Defence Staff's annual lecture to the Royal United Services Institute, General Sir David Richards said the country's main effort must be the economy, warning no country can defend itself bankrupt. He also said in tight financial times, new alliances would be needed. Here are some of the key points from his 30-minute lecture. First of all, like most of you, I'm clear that the single biggest strategic risk facing the UK today is economic rather than military. Over time, a thriving economy must be the central ingredient in any UK grand strategy. This is why the Eurozone crisis is of such huge importance, not just to the City of London, 
but rightly to the whole country and to military planners like me. Seen through my prism, the world looks especially unpredictable and unstable. Just look at some of the factors in our grand strategic analysis. Greater US military focus on the Pacific, meaning less emphasis on Europe and her problems. For the first time, the Pentagon has specified that its main effort will be Southeast Asia. I know this does not mean it will turn its back on Europe and NATO for one moment, but countries this side of the pond need to think through what it means to us. What impact will fiscal restraint and slow recovery have on European defence capabilities? Just five out of 28 NATO allies spend the target 2% on defence. And as the world evolves, so new groupings will emerge. The most obvious is our alliance with the French. In November 2010, Prime Minister Cameron and President Sarkozy signed a treaty that has this year already demonstrated its worth. Libya sealed this for us and demonstrated the benefits to Britain, Europe and NATO of having a solid Franco-British core. The UK will require other carefully chosen alliances over the coming decade through which to influence the strategic landscape and help determine the outcome of fast-moving crises. Already, our collaboration with countries in the Gulf and Africa has delivered results in the region for surprisingly little cost. Perhaps we should be focusing our defence relationships on these regions rather than competing for influence with many others in, for example, China or India. General Sir David Richard speaking last night. So where does this leave Britain in terms of European defence? Thomas Balasek is from the Centre for European Reform and joins us now. Thomas, thanks for your time today. Um, General Richards questions whether financial instability will impact European defence capabilities. How great a risk is that, do you think? It's not a risk, it's a reality. When you look at our missions, that is the European Union's missions today, uh, the uh, the Operation Atalanta um, uh, intercepting piracy in the Indian Ocean is down to a fraction of the ships uh, that ought to be there. The commanders of the mission in Bosnia com, uh, complain that they are down to, uh, way below the levels of uh, forces that they feel comfortable with. Um, and it's the same story in, in Kosovo and elsewhere. As, as we speak, uh, European uh, military forces on operations are being reduced below the levels that local commanders feel acceptable. And it's just a big of, of a story. I think that uh, when you look at the size of the cuts that are being implemented in defense budgets, uh, in combination with the possibility that the economic crisis will get a lot worse before it gets better, I think we're looking at a further retrenchment. Christopher Lee, uh, Britain's political alliances with the rest of Europe have become strained following the Prime Minister's veto of the new European Treaty last week. Critics saying Britain has been left out on the periphery in Europe. Uh, could this have an impact on joint British and European defense initiatives? No. Um, the point is about the uh, the strain in the alliance. It was the stress. It's not a strain. Uh, that's recoverable, and people are already talking to each other about the future. The fundamental problem is this. There ain't enough money. In some cases, there is no money. The ideal that each member of NATO, and quite a few members of the European Union are also members of NATO, should put, say, 2% of their GDP their gross domestic product on the line for defence spending. That is not going to be met. It is not going to be met for all sorts of reasons, but the number one reason is there are other things that have got to be paid for. Also, there will be public support for this. 
once you're out of Afghanistan, now out of Iraq. Um, I mean, Thomas was talking about, for example, the Indian Ocean piracy thing. Absolutely right, right on the, on, on the money there. But the average person in, for example, the United Kingdom, is going to say, well, so what? We're interested in hospitals, we're interested in education, law and order. And why should we actually be adding and supporting the, the promises, rather loose promises made, say, by the Prime Minister and the Defence Secretary, or the previous Defence Secretary, that there would be at least a 1%, maybe 2% in future. There's not going to be the money for it. Thomas Malasek, how will Europe fund defence in future? Who knows is the answer because we don't know where the economic crisis ends. Look, we know what the answers are. Uh, in the absence of money, obviously, we're looking at uh, more collaboration, hoping to reap economies of scale from doing things jointly rather than alone. But the reality is this pooling and sharing, as it is called, uh, pooling and sharing of military forces, is never going to replicate, uh, sorry, never going to compensate for the amount of cuts that we have made and are continuing to make in our defense budgets. So, uh, so we're looking at the European Union with far reduced ambitions, with a far lesser capacity to look after its interests um, in places like like uh, the Gulf of Aden, uh, we're in places like Kosovo. You might say, okay, does this matter? Um, perhaps we, we were too ambitious to begin with. Maybe we shouldn't have been involved in all these places. It, it's okay to retrench. But the reality is, you know, some, some types of trouble simply come to you. Again, piracy in the in, in Gulf of Aden is not an optional operation. This is something that if we don't, if, if untreated, affects your shipping and affects commercial interests. So we can't afford to take a complete break. Yet on present trends, we're about to, uh, to retrench. Uh, Christopher, um, a couple of weeks ago, Lord Ashton was on this programme talking about the need for European countries to work together on joint procurement projects. Do you think current projects are under threat as a result of the economic situation at the moment? Yeah, if you take, for example, a joint aircraft product, uh, project, rather, um, and somebody says, we can't afford as many planes as we ordered. And so everybody says, well, that's all right, except the unit cost of each aircraft, therefore, goes up. Then somebody says, we can't afford that much because it's getting more expensive. And that is the problem. If you go back to the 1970s, there was a thing called the Joint European Programme Group. And their idea was to produce joint aircraft. Uh, the, uh, the Tornado is an example. It was then called the MRC, the Multi-Role Combat Aircraft. It meant that all sorts of countries in Europe, Italy, Italy, Germany, United Kingdom, Spain, had to decide what sort of airplane they... You know, we were building by committee. And that is the weakness in Paddy Ashdown's argument that nobody can afford those sort of industries anymore, military industries anymore. So the alternative, and this is what they don't like in, in continental Europe quite often, is to go to America and say, well, can we buy some X sort of uh, F-16s from you or whatever? It means changing your whole thinking on how you procure military equipment. All right, Thomas Malasek from the Centre for European Reform. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. Now, a rare 18th century Red Jolly Roger pirate flag has gone on display at Portsmouth's Navy Museum. The flag was captured in the Battle of the North African Coast in 1780 by Lieutenant Richard Curry, who later became an admiral. The flag will become part of the museum's new 20th and 21st century galleries opening in 2014, which will show how the Royal Navy and the Royal Fleet Auxiliary fought and continues to fight pirates. Piracy. Victoria Ingalls is from the National Museum of the Royal Navy at Portsmouth Historic Dockyard. Thanks for your time today, Victoria. Tell us a bit about the history of this flag, first of all, why it is red. Um, well, there's a lot we don't know about the flag. Um, we think it actually dates from 1790s, not 1780s. Um, and it's actually been in the possession of the family for many, many years. Um, it 
was presented to, to Admiral Curry when he was a lieutenant um, and we think serving off the um, North African coast sometime in the 1790s um, and it had been passed down through the family um, and it's now on loan to the museum from the family. Um, as I say, we don't know precisely why he acquired it, whether it was something he seized at the time. As I say, he was certainly um, working within the Mediterranean in the 1790s and is reported to have um, a, a seized a few privateers at that time. So unfortunately, we don't know which vessel it was. Um, most people are quite surprised why it is red, but um, originally the Jolly Rogers were red. Um, the, the blood red colour was actually a symbol that no mercy would be shown by the pirates once they had boarded your vessel. So the idea would be that um, flying the flag might actually sort of scare um, your enemies into submission so that they could um, board your vessel without too much of a fight. Chris, Christopher, why, why do you think pirates elicit so much interest? Yeah, they're good fun, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, anybody, you know, pirates of the Caribbean, Johnny Depp's got a lot to answer for. But let's put this in some sort of perspective. Uh, and I think Victoria sort of can back me up on this. We have uh, to remember that pirates or corsairs or whatever, a great part of the Royal Navy for centuries. If you go to the Armada, for example, uh, in the Armada there were people who were uh, fighting on the English side, who in fact were corsairs. And you fought for money, you fought for taking a ship, a prize ship. You know, you could get a prize ship right up to the beginning of the Second World War, although it wasn't actually done. And so this concept of what the, the pirate is and what the corsair is was almost an official concept. It was fight, come along and fight for us, we actually need you. And actually, they were very good seamen as well, to put it on, on top of that. And, of course, Victoria, the, the Royal Navy and Royal Fleet Auxiliary are still fighting pirates today, or tackling them at least. Um, are they any different from those in the 1700s? Um, yeah, just as we were talking about, I mean, to some extent, um, 17th, 18th and even 19th century, they were almost sort of state-sponsored. The privateers would, would effectively have a licence from their government um, to go and um, board alien or enemy ships. Um, whereas today, obviously, the pirates aren't, um, as, you know, they're, they're acting much more um, for their own sort of greed and, and, and profit rather than sort of state sponsorship. But, um, you know, the, the motives um, haven't really changed very much, even though the technology that they are fighting with is, is very, very different to, to what it was two, three hundred years ago. All right, Victoria Engels, thank you very much for your time today. And that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our guests and, of course, Christopher Lee. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter. Tweet us at BFBS Sitrap. We're back next week when we will bring some of the biggest defence stories of 2011. So please join us at the same time. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now.